this hour, Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Special guests join Doug Wright for a discussion of the first volume of a four-volume narrative history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's Doug Wright on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Thank you for joining us on this very special program here between the conference sessions at KSL News Radio. We are so looking forward here at KSL to the conversation about the brand new book that I have in my hands. This is Volume 1. It's titled Saints, the Standard of Truth. And this is a history of the church, first volume of four, uh, dated 1815 through 1846. And we have put together just a very, very prestigious panel to join us today. Lisa Olson-Tate is with us, historian and writer and specialist in women's history. Lisa, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. And also, we have Stephen Harper, who is a historian for the Church History Department, professor of church history and doctrine at BYU. Stephen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Richard C. Turley, Jr., someone I've known for a long, long time, have a great admiration for. We have been members of certain organizations together, and not many nights ago, we were at uh, Utah Westerners together, and that's when we put some of this together. And Richard is the Managing Director of the Public Affairs Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Rick, welcome to the program. Thank you, Doug. Great to be with you again. Let's talk about where this idea came from. I was joking before we went on the air that it seems basically once every hundred years we come up with a history of the church. There's the one that began in 1830, published, started publishing in 1842, based on Joseph Smith's history of the church. Then in the uh, 20th century, we had B.H. Roberts, and that was officially put together and published in in 1930. And now here we are in 2018, beginning this odyssey and this legacy. So, Richard, maybe you could tell us about this. Where did this idea come from? It started in the 1990s. In, In 1994, I was the managing director of the church historical department, and as I read through Latter-day Saint scripture on the on the responsibilities of the church historian, I kept coming across scriptures that would say things like, it is the duty of the church historian to write and keep a history. And I noted that we hadn't kept a history in, in terms of a multi-volume history for a very long time. So I proposed to the executive director of the department at that time, Elder Stephen Nadal, that perhaps we could create a little prototype and see if it worked. So he gave me the authorization for that, and we created a little history of 1993 to see what it would be like to to write more modern history than had been written before. That was sort of the proof of concept, and so we started bringing it up in meetings up line. In 2001, I made a formal presentation to the First Presidency, and they took it under advisement, and a few years later in another meeting where we we took a, a more formal and more detailed presentation. They formally approved it and funded it. There is a message from the church president, first presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that is right, of course, at the beginning of the book. Were there any guidelines or any marching orders, as it were, from the first presidency? And the first presidency since the conversations you had has changed. First presidency has changed. The, The first presidency who approved it originally it was headed by President Gordon B. Hinckley. President Thomas S. Monson was his counselor at the time. And they approved it after hearing how it would be carried out. 
They had some questions initially, and I mentioned to them that we proposed to carry this out not as the project of a single individual, but as a, a group of teams. We would begin with a, a team of people who would get together around the table and brainstorm what would be in the volumes. Then we would essentially release that committee, bring on a new group of people who would outline the volumes, and then release that group and bring on a group who would do initial drafts, mostly from a historical perspective. And then we would bring in another team later to look at it from a literary perspective. The decision from the beginning was to make this a narrative history. The histories of the church in the past have been expository histories, but we wanted to have this be a dramatic narrative because the events of the past naturally were dramatic. Unlike some people who have fictionalized our past, we knew that we could write a dramatic history that would be that would be tied very, very closely to the sources. There would be no need to fictionalize it to have drama. It always drives me crazy when I see motion pictures or I see other stories that are based on the the history of the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and there are so many licenses taken, ridiculous in some cases, and it always makes me crazy that, good heavens, why would you mess around with something that already is so fascinating? Let's uh, get a little uh, more in-depth with our other two contributors, and by the way, the list is amazing. I'm assuming, Rick, that this was based somewhat on the formula for the Joseph Smith Papers. It, it looks a little familiar to me. It was. Yeah. Very much so. Lisa, how did you get involved in this, especially with your specialty in women's history? Well, I was brought on to the team to be what's called a review editor, which means that I work with the small group of writers and historians to review every chapter multiple times for accuracy, for quality, for... Um, I guess you'd say strategy. Are we are we telling the stories we want to tell? Are we telling them in the way that we think is, is best? Um, there's been a commitment in this project from the very beginning that this is the story of saints. This is a story of men and women who became Latter-day Saints, who became saints through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that that necessarily is going to include a lot of women which yeah. is a way that this work is quite groundbreaking because women's stories have not been really fully integrated into the way that the church's history has been told like this before. Were the women's stories harder to find, or have they just been perhaps overlooked or put on a secondary shelf? Probably some of both. And Steve can talk to, to can speak to that um, a little bit too, but um, I think we actually have a lot of really great sources from women, some of our best diaries, letters, autobiographies, accounts that we can draw on. And so some of it's been, you know, hiding in plain sight, so to speak. Right. But in other cases, we've, we've done some digging, and this will be especially evident in subsequent volumes that we've done. They have done a lot of work to really find women's stories yeah. in unprecedented ways. Steve, how did you come on board? Well, I got an invitation about 10 years ago to join one of the committees that Rick spoke about, and um, our task was to come up with an idea to be proposed to the First Presidency for what a new history might look like. 
When we come back, let's delve into some of these lives and stories. And I want to talk about how this book opens, this history opens. This is very non-traditional. For those who are familiar with some of the earlier volumes of church history, this opens with a wallop. Let's put it that way, kind of explosive. And we'll talk about that when we come back here at KSL News Radio. Saints, the standard of truth. 1815 to 1846 continues with Doug Wright on KSL News Radio. Let me quickly reintroduce our esteemed scholars, writers, editors who are here today. Lisa Olson Tate is with us. Uh, Stephen Harper is joining us as well, and Richard E. Turley Jr. One of the first questions that I asked, and I'll throw this back to Rick was, where did you come up with the opening of this? This is very non-traditional. As you get into the actual history, once you pass the introduction, the message from the church uh, first presidency, all of a sudden, I went, well, now, wait a minute. This is not uh, something that I'm used to, having a church history open this way. Traditional expository histories of the church have begun with either a genealogy of the Joseph Smith family, or with some type of need for a restoration, a long discourse about the need for a restoration. Because we chose to follow a narrative style, we needed to do what narrative writers call open with a grabber, something that takes the audience, pulls them into the story, and holds them there. So I had a volunteer on this project, actually a lawyer here in town, who was my 25-year hiking partner, Eric Olson, And he and I were out hiking one day talking about what kind of grabber we could use for the beginning. And he was the one that suggested that we begin with the explosion of Mount Tambora, the Indonesian volcano that sent ash into the air, which caused a change in the seasons, which drove the Smith family from New England to New York. And so that's what we chose as the opener. It it really does grab you. Lisa, your reaction, and Stephen, I want to get your reactions uh, to this as well. It it really does just immediately go, now, wait a minute, where is this going? (laughs) Opens with a bang, so to speak. Yeah. And it's been interesting how many people have commented on that to me. Who've, who've been reading the book and, and saying, wow, I really like that. That was really effective. And um, it, it's an interesting perspective that, that people won't have thought about in a way of placing the Smiths into a larger context of the world and, and of, of getting readers to think about the hand of God and how it works, moves in the world. And we don't in any simplistic way suggest that God created this natural disaster and made a lot of people suffer just to affect the Smith family. You know, we can't be that um, simplistic about it, but it is interesting to see how events unfold and how there often is a providential nature that isn't immediately discernible. Steve, this literally was an incident that literally shook the world and figuratively shook the world and had ripple effects around the world. And your thoughts on this opening and how it ties into the overall history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I loved it when I first heard it. I knew it was the right way to start this project because we wanted to do something that had never been done before. We wanted to prepare a history for lay Latter-day Saints, something they would devour and that would um, help them understand uh, their past in a, in a way that they had never been able to do before. So when I heard the idea, I knew it was the right way to do it. 
and especially because of the narrative approach. When you have a narrative, your story has to start with a problem, a big problem. The bigger the problem, the better the, the story can be because yeah. your, your main character has to have a, a big problem to overcome. So in this case, we introduce the biggest problem there is, which is the problem of suffering, the problem of death, the problem of disrupted relationships with people that we love. And we start in Indonesia, but pretty quickly circled the globe and right. noticed that everybody has those problems. Everybody around the world wrestles with those issues, including this family from Vermont that we see sort of making their way over the mountains into New York. And we're introduced to Joseph Smith, who uh, belongs to a family that has already wrestled with these problems, uh, suffering, death. He's almost died. Family members have died. And throughout the book, <clears throat> people that we love, the characters that we love, will continue to suffer and experience these, these problems of death and disrupted relationships. And the antidote, the resolution to this problem, as Joseph learns, is the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a nutshell, that's the history and the narrative. I don't mean to give away the ending. Sorry about that. <laughs> that's <but>. right. <laughs> give away the ending here, right? Spoiler alert. I wanted yeah. to spend some time on this because it does set the stage for what this history is and how different it truly is. But it's not without its scholarly part. I notice at the end there are lots and lots of references, footnotes, things like that. But it goes even deeper than that. I understand that you can meld this into things that are waiting for us online, Lisa. Yes, we have, in addition to the narrative, because we wanted it to be a story-driven narrative, we didn't want to stop the narrative to explain and go deeper into some of the topics and scholarly issues. So we've prepared, um, I forget the exact number, several hundred topic articles, they're called church history topics, that treat anything from individual people, to themes, to events, ideas, places, in more scholarly depth based on the wealth of scholarly information available to us. So interested readers can go ahead and dig deeper by reading in those topics. Rick, again, this sounds a little familiar to the Joseph Smith papers. While so much is in print and on paper and is published, there is so much more that is out online. So we wanted the general reader to be able to get a general sense of the history by reading the narrative and have all ships rise, if you will. But for those who are more advanced, for those who want to go deeper, we provided all types of avenues that allow for a deep dive through the Internet, through directions given in the notes about other sources. So this is not just for the, the, the beginner. This is for everyone who can go as deep as he or she wants to go. I'm so anxious to continue this conversation, which we will do after our half-hour break here. Saints, 1815-1846, The Standard of Truth, the brand-new history, Volume 1 of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When we come back, we're in an interesting era where there is so much information that is available within the Joseph Smith Papers and elsewhere on church websites. There have been so many essays, so many things. There is an era of transparency and uh, interesting conversations. I'd like to talk about how that perhaps affected Volume 1 of Saints. We'll talk about that when we return here at KSL News Radio. 
this hour, Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Special guests join Doug Wright for a discussion of the first volume of a four-volume narrative history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Here's Doug Wright on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Those who are in studio with me today here at KSL are a, an example or a reflection of I, I don't even I can't even imagine how many people must have been involved here. Just the folks that are listed in the credits at the beginning of the book. But let me reintroduce you to Stephen C. Harper, who is historian for the Church History Department, professor of Church History and Doctrine at BYU, Lisa Olson-Tate, who is historian, writer, and specialist in women's history, and then also uh, Richard E. Turley, Jr., who is the managing director of the Public Affairs Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, Just very quickly, any idea how many people were kind of directly hands-on involved in this? Everybody's looking at each other. I would imagine it's a rather ponderous and staggering number. Well, just recently, within the last year, there was a uh, group of more than 900 people who read chunks of chapters and commented on them. So there have been thousands of people involved to this point. I wanted to ask this question because many things have changed. First of all, just the access to information is incredible. Things that you used to have to go into a library and ferret out or go wherever to find things. Now it's right there on the Internet accurate or not. It's out on the internet. There has been an era of bringing things forward through the Joseph Smith papers, through the essays that are on the various church websites and so on, that have been designed to bring clarity, bring some of this information forward. Uh, Some of it has been quite interesting, some of it very enlightening, some of it very faith-promoting, some of it question-prompting. How have you dealt with that? Because a lot of that is in this era. A lot of it Uh, Joseph Smith's first vision, for example, the translation of the plates, and that list goes on. How was that dealt with in this book? And maybe, Stephen, I could throw that to you. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, You're talking to a group of people who welcome that sort of thing. Uh, All of us are people who've spent good parts of our lives digging into those questions. Um, We have an insatiable appetite to know what the raw historical records say. What did the historical witnesses experience? What can we recover? And uh, none of us have any desire to keep that from anybody. And that, that was our marching orders, too. That was our instructions. This history should be forthcoming. And in a narrative, you want great dramatic tension. And in our history, we have great tension, problems, controversies. So we simply married those two. Uh, The historical challenges, issues, complications are linked up with the narrative tension in the story, and it makes for a fantastic read. We've heard from lots and lots of people who tell us they can't put the book down. They may not know exactly why that is, but the reason it is is because the dramatic tension of the narrative is linked directly to the historical challenges. Lisa, just your quick thoughts on this and what we actually have in this volume. Well, we, of course, are very aware of a lot of the questions and issues that, that people have. And as Steve said, part of the commission for this project was to be forthcoming and to, um, to put it all out there 
to, to deal with, with the, the problematic issues of, as part of telling the larger story, to deal with them in context. Um, realizing that the book couldn't be bogged down to stop and discourse on every little problem or issue or question someone might have. Um, we did uh, choose to be somewhat selective in choosing stories and characters and incidents that would be representative to help tell some of the stories, to help address some of the issues um, without necessarily being comprehensive and bringing up every possible example and every possible issue that right. could be out there. Rick, I, I recall a, a, a gathering that we were at. I can't remember if it was a book signing <laughs> or if it was one of the uh, historian meetings that we attend. But it was on Leonard Arrington, and they were talking a little bit about everybody with great, wonderful intention, but there was one side of history that was the history must be presented to be faith-promoting. The other side was the history must be presented unvarnished, and it will be faith-promoting. Where are we in this book? We, we've followed the latter course on this. Our belief, having looked at this cumulatively, looking at the totality of the evidence, to use a lawyerly term, was that when you take it all and put it on balance, you are demonstrating that these saints, these members of the church through time, were human beings with all the frailties of human beings, but collectively they were striving to do what was right. They were striving to become modern-day disciples of, of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we elected to just lay it all out there recognizing that while there would be moments of tension that do make for great dramatic narrative, in the end, the story is of a very happy story of people <laughs> overcoming adversity and progressing through time to become better people. Brigham Young actually uh, is quoted at the very, very beginning of the book saying that history should not be dry. And if I have this written down correctly, write in a narrative style, tell the stories and so on. I want to hear your stories. As you worked on this book, as you, and you're working on the subsequent volumes, as you delved into the history, maybe from a little different angle than you have in the past and with a little different purpose than you have in the past, I want to hear your stories. What touched you? What reached you? Was there a part that was particularly difficult? Was there a part that was particularly enlightening? Was there something that you heard that maybe you weren't completely up to speed on? And maybe I could start with Stephen on this one. <clears throat> Oh, that's a great question, too. I can't think of anything that I hadn't heard or didn't know about before. Uh, we all come at this with many years of studying these records behind us. We've learned new new stories and new characters and new sources, but I, I can't think of any major issue or, or event that I hadn't known about before. But for me, the, the biggest... Um, uh, lesson has been something Rick taught me really early on. He, he said, you need to know about the creative process. And he introduced me to six steps in the creative process. Step one is, this is really awesome. And step two is, this is tricky. <laughs> and step three is, this is garbage. And step four is, I am garbage. <laughs> and I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Step five is, this is going to be okay. This might work out. And step six is back to the beginning. This is awesome. And I can uh, attest that that's, that's, my, that's been my experience with this. And I am really gratified to be witnessing the public reception of it 
and to hear from many, many people that it's what they've been looking for, what they've yeah. hoped for. It's really Rick's vision that has been realized, and um, I'm grateful to have been a part of that and to, to, to watch the creative process. It was painful in the middle, uh, but it's been extremely rewarding. Rick, was there a moment or a subject or a part of this process that touched you a little differently or more deeply than others? I think it's important to remember that this is a project that was approved by our First Presidency and members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, people who we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators, as visionaries. And so there was a vision that lay behind this entire project. And the vision was to present a history that could be consumed by all members of the church around the globe, regardless of their of their circumstances. In the past, we've written to a niche audience. So this expansive vision was one that, candidly, some people weren't certain we could achieve. There were a number of naysayers, particularly when we got into the middle of the creative process, which we knew would be difficult, right. and where, frankly, the most work gets done is in that difficult center. There were those who w- w- would say, you know, I don't think this is going to work. But ultimately, coming to the end of it now, I think we've all felt the satisfaction of seeing this prophetic vision realized. Uh, I want to talk with Lisa next, but uh, I, and I have not read the entire book, of course, yet. I just got it a little while ago. And we'll talk a little bit about that, the presentation of the book, the distribution of the book, too. But as I was th- thumbing through it, I, I just hit one part. And I was not fully aware of this, and it's when the saints were being driven from Nauvoo and endowments were being done under the supervision of Brigham Young at that time. And he finally just called a halt to it and said, we have got to get out of the city. And again, I love the way it's presented. It's presented, it's a story. It's a, it's a riveting story. It's a sad story. And now he told everybody it was more imperative that they get out of the city safely, get across the river. But the saints continued to gather. And the next morning, the temple was filled again And Brigham Young recognized that perhaps what was needed were those sacred ordinances, that kind of thing, to give them the faith, give them the fortitude, give them the courage to go forward. I was deeply touched by that uh, when I read it. I'd I'd never read it that way before. I'd heard of some of the Exodus stories before. But that one really touched me. Lisa, what touched you? Well, I... There's so many, so many great stories in the in the book, and cumulatively, what touched me is the connection to these early Latter Day Saints as people, as as human beings that we can relate to. That this device that we've used throughout the book of telling the stories through the perspective and the point of view of individual characters, I think, is very powerful. Um, in my graduate work, I, I studied American literature and narrative theory and thought a lot about and read a lot of work about the power of narrative and the power of identification and how uh, that's the mechanism by which narrative works is by having readers be able to identify with a character, with another person. And the fact that in this book, they're all real people and they're real experiences. Every word in this book, every, every word of dialogue that you see here is based on a historical source. These are things people actually said. 
we did not make up any of that. I think that's really powerful. And, and that's why I do history, is to connect to the human experience, the human condition, to understand what people's experiences and feelings have been. There's a level on which we can never fully enter into the past, but through narrative and through story, I think we get as close as we can to having that connection with people that we consider to be our brothers and sisters. Before we take a break, what were some of the richest minds or veins? Uh, For example, you mentioned that this can all be traced back to a document, and this isn't made-up dialogue. Is it the journeys? Would, Would that be fair to say, or was it the written history? Everybody's pointing at you, Steve. I mean, all of the above, but Steve can speak more specifically. Well, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sources that underpin this book. Journals, autobiographies, letters, newspaper, articles, just about anything that uh, you can imagine being recorded. And the totality of that historical record is is rich. I don't know of any other people... um, besides Latter-day Saints who are so concerned about record-keeping. And from the beginning, that was a charge. So we've been by no means perfect in it. Joseph himself started to keep his own journal two and a half years after he'd been commanded to keep a record. And then he did it dutifully for a week, and then he quit for ten months. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? (laughs) So we do have gaps, but he and his followers were incredibly dutiful in keeping records of their quest to become saints through the atonement of Christ. And because of that, we were able to write a book like this. We'll take a brief break. And in our final segment, I want to talk about the distribution of the book, the format of the book, the way uh, I was surprised that it wasn't some big leather-bound thing when I first heard about it. We'll talk about that, how inexpensive it is, and the future, the next three volumes. That's coming up next here at KSL. Saints. The Standard of Truth, 1815 to 1846, continues with Doug Wright on KSL News Radio. This is a conversation that could go on for hours. Unfortunately, we have been relegated to one hour here between the conference sessions. In my hands, I have Saints, 1815-1846, The Standard of Truth. This is the new volume, volume one of what will be four, The History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Narrative Style. One thing that we really haven't completely talked about, I've alluded to it, but this is in a different presentation. Often when we get a a new history, and it's going to be multi-volumes, it's leather-bound, it's on the shelf, you know, that type of thing. Scholars only uh, generally are buying it. Rick, tell us a little bit about the idea behind this, and how many languages is this in already? Because we wanted to go to the global church membership and others around the world who are interested in the history, we chose to distribute it first in the form that would be most accessible, which is an electronic version on the Gospel Library, paperback version that can be purchased inexpensively. Also, the entire text is available online. We first serialized a few chapters in the pages of the Ensign and Liahona magazines in between 43 and 48 languages. We have an audio book available initially in three languages. So it's, it's consumable in virtually every form that a book can be consumed. That is really uh, amazing that already, I, I can't imagine, as, as difficult as it is to put things together in the traditional original language that most of this is in, there may have been a few Danish diaries or something that I'm not aware of, but how hard is that process to get this in so many different languages? 
Well, uh, from my perspective, it's been smooth because of all the people involved. So for Latter-day Saints, when you get a prophetic mandate, you get a directive from prophets and they they make the resources, the human and material resources available, there's nothing, you can't stop it. You couldn't stop the church history department and the other departments, Rick's and all the others that have been involved, the translators, you couldn't stop them from getting this work done. Right. So it's been pushed by thousands of people and uh, with so many people, talented and, and dedicated people involved, it's been not overwhelming for any, any one person. And it's been a real a team effort, and everybody, I think, has felt really invested in it in a wonderful way. Three more volumes to come, and this one, obviously, is the Joseph Smith era and slightly post. Where do we go from here? What will be in the next three volumes? If we could just address that quickly, Lisa. Yes, so each volume is structured around a culminating point having to do with the temple. So in this volume, we get to the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple. Volume 2 will take us up to 1893 in the dedication of the Salt Lake Temple. Volume 3 will take us to 1955 in the dedication of the Swiss Temple, so we're taking temples to the world. And then the, the final volume will bring us up to the present, more or less, with temples dotting the earth. That, that is so interesting. I, I, I wasn't aware that that would be the, the, the markers, the milestones mm. that we would take. We so sadly are out of time. Uh, Rick, as you know, I am a bibliophile. I love beautiful books, and we were talking about that just the other night. So will there be maybe a uh, hardbound? Will there be a leather version of this? We'll have to wait and see. As we originally conceived it, we thought of those as possibilities. But as I said, we initially wanted to get out in paperback form. It it is interesting because a price wasn't specifically mentioned. You mentioned affordable, but uh, here locally in the church distribution center, it's $5.75. That's correct. That is very affordable. And all of the rest will follow the same basic format. Yes. I cannot thank you enough for joining us. We have just scratched the surface, obviously, of an amazing history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and to our historians, our editors, our writers who are just a a sampling of those who have worked so hard. Richard E. Hurdley Jr., thank you so much, first of all, for your friendship, but also for all of your work on this, Managing Director of the uh, uh, Public Affairs Department of the Church. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Doug. Lisa, so good to have you here as well as historian, writer, and a specialist in women's history. Thank you for your perspective. Thanks, Doug. And Stephen, thank you. Also, Stephen Harper joining us, historian uh, for the Church History Department, professor of history and doctrine at BYU. What a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us here between the conference sessions at KSL News Radio.